you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Dan LeBlanc and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming out. We appreciate your time. Hopefully we can make it worthwhile for you. Um, that's our intention. We're here to try to educate and help out. So the presentation today is going to cover off very briefly a little bit of a market update, and it's going to cover off some tips on tax planning. Now, please note, the Canadian Income Tax Act is tens of thousands of pages long. This is not everything. These are a couple of highlights, a couple of things to think about, a couple of tidbits, whatever we can cram into a 30 to 40 minute presentation. And it's designed to start conversations and make you more informed. So when you're asking questions or when we're describing something to you, it's maybe not the first time we're describing it. I just covered off the welcome. Dan, did I miss anything in the preamble or can I? No, I think we're good to carry on. See, th this is how it works. Dan is my sober second thought, and this is how my life runs. Just going to cover off a couple of quick slides on the market, because that's what you guys have come to expect of us. Trust me, it's three slides, and they're all easy to understand, I hope, and very, very basic before we get into the tax part of what we're going to talk about. This is, ooh, I, got a, I have a laser pointer. That's how cool this is. This is the market performance last number of years. And again, you've been watching your statements. Most of you have been watching. Some of you have been watching your statements, so you've probably seen the ride. But this is just pointing out the different asset classes from 2019 through 2020, 2021. 2022, last year, was a bad year. There's just no other way to say it. Everything dropped. It was one of the few times in history we've seen the bond market drop, at a similar magnitude to the equity market, and it basically disrupted being diversified. It didn't matter how diversified you were last year, you suffered a decline in your account. So that was universal. Now, the start of this year started out well. By the start, I mean January. This was put together before February. February wasn't so good. But th there was a start of a rebound this year, which, again, is very typical when you see a sell-off. At some point, you're going to see a recovery. The big thing is, is knowing when. And again, for those who are regulars, forgive me for repeating stories because there's certain stories in my life that are seminal that I always come back to mind. And this one was of my six-year-old daughter. She's not six-year-old now, but when she was six years old, my kids used to come home from school and they would always, I'd ask them how the day was and they'd say, fine. I'd say, not good enough. You got to tell me a story. So I always push them to tell me a bigger story about their day. Being kids, of course, they turned that around. How was your day at work, dad? Fine. Couldn't get away with it. So to a six-year-old, it became, how did the market do today? Because she would think that that was a proxy for how my day went. And whenever I would come home at the end of the day and say, you know, she would say, how was the market? I'd say, the market was down. She goes, oh, that's okay, daddy. Every time you tell me it's down, the next day you tell me it's up. You know, them going there. There's some wisdom coming out of the six-year-old girls. No, that she came to that all on her own. So that's part of what's been demonstrated here. Now, again, February's not been as good. But typically, after we see a pullback like this, it's reasonable to expect things going forward will show some kind of a rebound at some point. So this is, if you could see it, there's a line on here that basically shows inflation going back. So inflation peaked at around 8% in Canada. And recently, it's begun to decline gradually down to about 6% on the last reading. This is what's driving everything right now. This is the, the, the biggest issue facing the markets because it's influencing monetary policy. It's influencing consumer sentiment. So the fact that inflation has begun to become under control is a big deal. Now, the conundrum right now is every time you see good economic news, that's actually bad because we're looking for the economy to slow down, to slow down inflation. So when you see a solid jobs number or you see a solid economic number and you go to get happy for a second, don't become sad. 
because until we see those numbers start to become negative, the, the central banks are going to feel pressure to act. They're going to feel pressure to drive interest rates even higher. We need things to slow down. Now, because they started to slow down doesn't mean they're going to continue to slow down. But right now, expectations are it's largely under control. So if you're going to hope for something, hope for bad economic news. Everybody remember that. It's very important we all hope for the right thing because we need to take some pressure off monetary policy and allow things to get on to the next phase because things always go through a cycle. So how do we react to all this? We're balanced. Right now, our, our opinion is very neutral. From this point forward, we could see things begin to grow fairly quickly. Vladimir Putin's body shows up in a ditch somewhere. We see surprising economic information from an inflation standpoint. Things are going to get happy pretty quickly. But it could also drag on for a while. And right now, those are probably equally likely from this point. So our take internally is we have a balanced approach. Now, keeping in mind when we're, we're more confident one way or the other, our moves are maybe 5 or 10% between guarantees and equities. So we don't make huge swings because, again, you can't be that confident when it comes to what's going to happen next. I mean, we're one nuclear weapon away from the new cycle changing again. And again, we're not smart enough to know with certainty what's going to happen next. Right now, we're sitting very balanced. The good thing now, from that perspective, is that we can get a higher rate of return on the fixed income. Like when we're allocating into fixed income, which is bonds and things of that nature, a year ago, it was like with great... I wouldn't say regret, but with very trepidation, it's like, we're not getting a good return here. But because interest rates are higher, that part of the portfolios, yeah, you can now see a reasonable rate of return. You're seeing long-term government bonds over 4%. You're seeing some private debt, 6 7%. So we can see better returns going forward, which points out one of the dangers. You take a look at the fact that the fixed income market lost money last year, but it goes, ooh, obviously that's bad. No, 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 it's now down from this point forward. There's much more possibility that we're going to be making money. That's where we stand from that perspective. All right, so the big buildup. How many people are aware that we offer tax preparation services through our sister company, WLWI? All right, for those who weren't, you're now, you've now been told. So I'm going to give one preamble slide, then I'm going to set Dan loose. All right. And this is where Dan and I differ. This is why it's great to have both of us in the room. Differs a strong word. We see we see two sides of two sides of the coin. When we talk about tax planning, it's important to keep it in context because, as I describe to people when I work with them, it's you're going to hate me for one or two reasons. I'm going to lose you money, and you're going to be upset with me. I'm going to make you money, and it's going to cause you to pay income tax. Please let me win. All right. So the act of actually making money will cause you to pay some tax. So paying tax is not entirely a bad thing. It is important to try to minimize it where possible, but other things are more important. Having the cash flow to support your lifestyle and accomplish your goals. That's what money is for. Money is options. You want to make sure you put yourself in a position that you're prioritizing things correctly. Part of that is about minimizing your taxes once everything else is satisfied. So that is the, the level that we're talking about. I've watched many people in my career try to live on, on, on soup and walnuts, trying to reduce their income so that they don't pay tax, and they've got a mountain of money they could be spending to enjoying their life. So... You know, be careful about the importance you place on your tax planning. But having said that, it is important, and there's some very basic things you can do that won't necessarily disturb your world that make your world a better place. Now, I'm going to turn it over to Dan. Dan's going to run a lot of the next the coming slides because Dan's my tax guy. So for those who, who, who Dan's it. Like this, this, this is where you want to go. So I'm going to pass over the thing to Dan, and Dan's going to talk to you about income tax. 
puts a lot of pressure on me right there. Uh, hear me okay? Good. So, uh, thanks, Colin. Who's excited, as excited as I am about talking about things? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Uh, it is a wonderful time of year, is it not? Tax time? That's me. Like Cohen said, there's thousands of pages in the Income Tax Act. We're not going to cover everything. We're going to cover some basic information today. Uh, starting off, I hope everybody knows the filing deadline is April 30th. That happens every year, except if it's on a weekend and it's the next business day. But even though we're dealing with taxes at least on an annual basis, there's still lots of misconceptions around taxes and, and little things that come up from year to year that seem to still cause some confusion. So if you have any questions along the way, Feel free to, to ask, or we can wait till the end, and we'll have a question, period. Generally, the Canadian tax system is, is one of progression. It's a progressive or uh, bracket-related tax system that we, that we operate in Canada. Every province is a little bit different in their brackets, but the concept is the same uh, across the board. Okay. I'm going to start by talking a little bit about tax bracket. So this is a concept. I hope everybody has a little bit of an understanding about but we're going to try to clarify some of it today. These are the Nova Scotia tax brackets. Congratulations, you live in one of the highest tax jurisdictions in Canada. Thank you for being part of our province, paying taxes, help pay the, pave the roads and keep our hospitals operating and so on. Uh, the concept here is the same. So the concept of marginal tax brackets simply is that for every dollar that you earn, the next dollar that you earn is going to be taxed at the progressive marginal tax rate. Doesn't change the tax that you're gonna pay on what you've already earned up to that point. So the one thing, one comment I hear quite often from people is that I don't wanna earn more money in retirement, I'm just gonna give it all away in taxes. Or I don't wanna work overtime, I'm gonna give it away in taxes. So this whole concept about jumping to a new tax bracket and that's gonna penalize me, I'm gonna give away all my money. There's no situation in Canada in any province where you're going to give away all your money in taxes. The highest tax rate here, if you could see it, is 54% if you're over $235,000 of income. But you still keep 46% of your money. You're never going to lose 100% of it. There is no 100% tax bracket, at least not yet. <laughs> Hopefully, we won't get there. So just to illustrate that point of marginal tax brackets, use $65,000 as a base income simply because at that level, an individual would have paid all of the CPP premiums, Canada Pension Plan premiums that are applicable to an income of that range. So this is somebody under age 65, there is a reason for that. With just a basic T4 uh, from employment with CPP, EI deductions and income tax deducted. That individual in Nova Scotia would pay $14,284 in tax. If we could see the brackets over here, we know that at $64,000 in this bracket, uh, the tax rate is 37.7%. Uh, but if we look at the average tax rate, 14,284 on 65,000 is 21.9%. So that's the average rate you pay on the entire income. Uh, and that uses all of the credits that we qualify for, the basic exemption, and so on and so on. The marginal rate is what if you earn one more dollar? In this example, I use $1,000. Say $1,000 bonus at the end of the year takes you to $66,000 total income for the year. Your average tax rate then bumps up a little bit from 21.9 to 22.2. So that's your average rate, how much total tax you're paying on your total income. 
but the marginal rate, that's the incremental tax you pay on that extra $1,000. And in this case, it's 377 extra dollars in tax you pay on that extra $1,000 of income. That's your marginal rate. That's how much you pay in tax on the next dollar that you're gonna earn. But it doesn't change the income tax that you paid on the income up to that point. So the $65,000 already earned, Earning another $1,000 doesn't change the tax on that first $65,000. It's only incrementally from that point on how much are you paying in tax. That's the marginal rate. That's the important terminology that we work with. Marginal tax rates when we talk about should you make an RSP contribution? How much should you take out of your RSP or your RIF at any given point in time? Understanding your marginal tax rate is where the tax planning comes in and understanding the benefit between an RSP and a tax-free savings account, contributions, withdrawals, all those, all those factors that come into play. There are situations where if you're over 65, the tax brackets change a little bit here because there's other credits available to 65 plus year olds, like the age credit, um, but we, that's maybe for another topic. The thing about tax planning, it's about minimizing the taxes you're paying, deferring tax, but minimizing over time. You don't want to get too caught up and I want to minimize my taxes this year if it's going to cause you a bigger tax bill down the road. Because what Dan's pointing out is the various tax brackets. So we work with her clients to make sure in a given year, if there's not much taxable income, maybe you're not paying enough income tax. You actually should trigger more. We have a few meetings with clients at the end of the year who've got business interests and other things where we're trying to figure out how much income do we want to trigger right now. Because you can defer to the point and drive yourself into a higher marginal tax bracket unnecessarily then you're paying more taxes than you need to pay over time. So the point about taxation isn't if you're gonna pay it, it's when you're gonna pay it and how much it's gonna be. The whole idea is like, I don't wanna pay tax. No, 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 that's, that's, that's not the deal you sign when you get born in Canada. It's about when you pay it, how much it is. It's not about minimizing it any given year. So it's more of a long-term thing. All right. So back a little bit to the tax bracket concept, and I thought I'd use this as an example to illustrate uh, taxation. And a question we get very often is, should I use an RSP? Should I contribute to a tax-free savings instead? And uh, how does that look? So just a very quick, I'm gonna take just one minute on this. Uh, the options between a TFSA and an RSP. So just to illustrate, if you have $10,000 of earnings and in Nova Scotia, a common tax bracket is 37%, so I use that. You can choose to pay tax on those earnings, that, let's say 10,000 of total earnings. If you're paying tax on it at 37%, that's $3,700, you have $6,300 left over, you can roll that into a tax-free savings account. If you choose to make a $10,000 RSP contribution, you're gonna reduce your taxable income by that same dollar amount. You'll pay no tax on that 10,000, you have a full $10,000 invested in your RSP. So 10,000 in your RSP grows over 20 years. I'm using 5% as an example, grows to 26,532, whereas 6,300 in a tax-free savings grows to 16,715. If at the end of 20 years, you pull the full dollar amount out of those two plans, the TFSA, you end up with 16,715. There is no tax on that account. On the RSP, you're gonna pay full tax at 37%, 9817 in income tax, you're left with 16,715. Conclusion here is if you're in the same tax bracket today as you're going to be in the future, the RSP and the TFSA are exactly the same.
and what results you're going to get from them, assuming the investments are similar. If we know for a fact you're going to be in the lower tax bracket later than you are today, the RSP wins. You're going to do better in that scenario. If you're going to be in the lower tax bracket, or if you're in the lower tax bracket today, you're going to be in the higher tax bracket later, you would pay more tax on the RSP withdrawal. You'd be left with less money than the TFSA. That's just the math. That's just saying, how does it work out applying the math? But there's the reality of life and the world around us and building flexibility around your plan. So maybe you were not factoring in. If the RSP withdrawal pushes you over the old age security clawback threshold, that bumps up your tax rate. So let's take that in consideration. Maybe you want to plan for the unforeseen events that happen in life. Maybe the tax-free savings account is better off from a flexibility perspective. So just a point, because uh, it's a question we get a lot, RSP versus TFSA. There's math behind it, and then there's the reality of life and whether one situation is better for you versus the other. Uh, let's talk a little bit about income splitting, uh, combining credits. So there are limited things we can do on the tax return from year to year to reduce how much we're going to pay and, and uh, turn over to the government. Uh, common things for common law couples, married couples, in retirement or in once receiving any type of pension income. This could be superannuation pension that you're receiving from prior work. Uh, it could be RIF income, so RSPs converted to a RIF after age 65, also qualifies as pension income. So those two sources can be split on the tax return. One, the, the recipient receives that income on the tax return. You can split it and share it with your spouse and reduce the household's tax uh, burden for the year. Your tax preparer, if you're doing your own taxes or if we're doing your taxes, whoever your tax preparer is should be doing that and optimizing your pension income splitting kind of as an automatic part of preparing and filing your tax return. One concept that's maybe lesser known is the CPP, the Canada Pension Plan sharing. So any spouses have the ability to apply to Service Canada to share Canada Pension Plan. Uh, so it's, a, it's applying to share the credits that you've earned between couples over the period of time that you live together. Uh, so once both are receiving their Canada Pension, you can apply to share it. It's not called pension splitting, it's called pension sharing. Uh, but it is something that we don't see very often. And every now and then we run across a scenario where two spouses receiving Canada pension, one's receiving a very large amount, the other's receiving a very low amount, and their incomes are not quite balanced out on their tax return where they could gain some efficiencies of splitting that or sharing that CPP as well. So a lesser known concept of something that could be worthwhile considering. Joint investment accounts, if you hold non-registered investments in your own name and you do have a spouse, then the individual who owns the account is going to report the income. If there is a legitimate, if that was a legitimate joint asset and you're holding it in two names and you can split the income being generated from those investments accounts. So we do see that from time to time. Legacy accounts that were just held in one name could have been a joint account because the money came from joint sources prior to that. Little things like optimizing medical expenses. So we often get tax files where you have medical expenses in each of the individual's names in case of couples or common-law spouses. Uh, so we, I think there's a sense that maybe each individual has to claim their own. They can and they should be combined on one tax return. And the lower income spouse should be claiming those, those medical expenses because there's efficiencies in crossing a certain threshold. 
that's something your tax preparer should be looking at and optimizing for you as well. And then uh, charitable donations. You know, one individual doesn't have to claim all donations. You can split them. You can claim them on, all on one tax return if there's a reason to do that. The one little thing on char charitable donations is the first $200 of donations you, you make receive about a 24, 25% tax break. Anything above and beyond $200, you're getting about a 50% tax deduction if you live in Nova Scotia. If you're in Ontario, BC as an example, is gonna be closer to 20% on the first 200 and closer to 40 to 45% on the next bit, whatever that represents. Where's the money, Colin? I don't know, wherever you left it, Dan. So I'm just gonna address, and we struggled for me to contribute to this presentation because this is so Dan, as you could tell, I was starting to learn stuff while he was talking right there. So, but uh, my slide, I get to talk about different types of income because this is also important in the investment world. So different types of income is, is taxed differently. There's earned income, which is taxed basically at the highest rate, but then you can receive dividend income and or capital gains income, both of which currently enjoy preferential treatment in federal and provincial income tax. So, which is why you'll sometimes see us when it gets down to investment planning, the joint investment accounts held outside of registered plans, not in an RRSP, not in a TFSA. It becomes important as to what investments you hold there because if you can get a capital gain or a dividend income in that theater, it's better for you. So, which is why you'll find when we put together a portfolio, we'll take a lot of the interest-bearing investments and try to keep them inside of registered plans, specifically registered retirement saving plans and RIFs, because we want all the dividend and capital gains income generating investments to be in non-registered accounts, because there's an advantage to that. So what type of income it is and where it comes from matters from an investment perspective. And it is one of those things that, again, when we're working with a client to do both the tax return as well as their investment planning, we can kind of bring that all together and make sure that we're optimizing that. So it's just a wrinkle. Now I'm gonna go really quiet for a while because the next three or four or five or 10 slides are all Dan, and I'm gonna go over here and drink my coffee. Thank hey. you. So a little bit of terminology that some people may or may not be aware of. Deductions, non-refundable tax credits, and refundable tax credits. So I'm just gonna take a very quick moment here uh, Essentially, a deduction is a reduction of your taxable income. Things like pension plan contributions, RSP contributions, uh, management fees on non-registered investment accounts. Those kind of things are a direct deduction against your taxable income and reduce the tax you're going to pay at your marginal tax rate. A non-refundable tax credit is called non-refundable because if your credits exceed how much tax you owe the government, you don't get refunded on that excess. That excess just goes away and disappears at the end of that tax year. Non-refundable tax credits are things like the basic exemption that everybody in Canada receives. If you're over 65, there's an age credit that you qualify for that could be adjusted based on your income. If you're collecting pension, there's a pension credit. If you have medical expenses, those fall into that category. Tuition expenses for yourselves or for children or grandchildren fall into that category. So uh, disability tax credit falls into that category. So we have situations where we can have an individual with $30,000 worth of credits and they only have $25,000 worth of income. That means that extra 5,000 of credits kind of goes unused, uh, which is okay. Uh, you still, you wouldn't pay tax in that situation, but the unused credits don't get refunded back to you. 
Refundable tax credits are one where even if you owe zero tax, you still get refunded. Things in Nova Scotia, uh, applicable in Nova Scotia would be the uh, Volunteer Firefighters Research and Rescue Credit is a $500 credit. You can have no tax owing but still receive a refund in that sense. The GST, HST credit that we receive on a quarterly basis. Those kind of things that are income tested uh, are refundable tax credits. So a little bit of a concept between what's a deduction and what's non-refundable tax credit. It's somewhat of an automatic thing on your tax return. You don't get to pick and choose. I want it to be a deduction, not a refundable, non-refundable credit. Uh, they are classed as they are, and your tax preparer would put them in the right spot. So just a little bit, I guess something for everyone. We all get a basic personal amount on our tax returns. If you're over 65, you do get to claim an age amount. And it is based on how much you get based on your income. As your income grows, your age amount is reduced. Uh, a pension income amount, if you're receiving pension income from a superannuation or RIF income after age 65, you qualify for the pension income amount. It's a $2,000 claim at the federal level, different amount for the province. Spouse or common law partner. So I mentioned earlier, if you have unused credits, if your credits exceed the amount of tax you owe, they go unused, except if you have a spouse and your spouse has taxable income. Any unused credits from one spouse transfer to the other spouse's tax return and that spouse can use the excess for the couple. So there's a large benefit there. And the Canada employment amount. If you're employed, if you're receiving T4 income, for example, you would get to claim an additional amount for being employed. A few more credits. Uh, we call them misunderstood, maybe underused, misunderstood. Uh, the one thing is disability tax credit. I did want to take a moment to talk about that particular credit that I think some people uh, overlook. And there's been some changes to the rules of who qualifies for the disability tax credit. It is a, a quite a reason, quite a large deduction on the tax return for those who do qualify for. Uh, there's been an expansion of who would qualify for it, whether whether it's related to an impairment that we have, whether there's uh, mental capacities or just the the, the ability to uh, to conduct the daily functions of life. There's a number of things that fall into the category. I'm not going to get into all those details, but it is one of those things that we see overlooked. The one good thing is. Uh, with that particular credit is, well, your doctor has to follow, if you're going to follow an application or somebody you know, if they follow an application, your doctor has to complete an a portion of the application that goes to CRA. But CRA will backdate this. And I've seen situations where CRA has gone back 10 years. So we've had 10 years where the tax returns re revised with credits provided for all those 10 years, 10 years back to the taxpayer. So it is something that if you have any questions about, you can... Uh, and talk to me afterwards one-on-one -on -one if there are particular situations that you're wondering about. But it can be quite an impactful credit that gets claimed year to year. For anybody under 49 years old who qualifies for the disability tax credit, they would also qualify for the RDSP, the Registered Disability Savings Plan. It's a, a government-sponsored plan where any contributions made to that particular account uh, would receive government grant. And it's something that builds very quickly. Uh, you have to be under 49 years old to get the government grant. So if anybody in your circle uh, would potentially fit that category, could be some questions to answer there. A month for an eligible dependent. So eligible dependent, caregiver amount, these are more and more common where uh, maybe somebody in your 
you're is living with you, or maybe you're caring for somebody in the home, could be a, a parent, grandparent, a child, uh, aunt and uncle, anything of those situations. There is an income test here as to what you would qualify for, uh, but it is something we're seeing more and more of uh, people caring for somebody or at least having a dependent uh, rely on them for certain aspects of their daily lives. And they could fit into one of these categories, eligible de dependent or qualify for the caregiver amount. Uh, the home buyer's amount, uh, very simply, if you're buying a home for the first time, uh, you, you'd qualify for a credit. Seems where I look around this room, maybe that's a thing of the past for a lot of folks here. Uh, digital news subscription. This is an interesting one that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with, but if you subscribe to Globe and Mail, for example, I have a subscription to the Globe and Mail, I get to claim a, a, a credit on my tax return for paying Globe and Mail a monthly amount for that subscription. So if you have a digital news subscription, you get to claim a credit on your tax return for that. Home accessibility, if you're renovating your home to uh, allow for accessibility. So maybe you have to widen some hallways, some doors, uh, build a ramp in the, in the house and so on. So if you're making, uh, making renovations, spending money on renovations for the home for accessibility, there is a tax credit for that. It was $10,000 total. Now it's up to $20,000 that you can spend and claim towards those credits. No, it's not a $20,000 deduction of your taxes. It is a credit at the federal rate of 15%. So even if you spend $20,000, you will get a maximum $3,000 back in taxes. And then tuition transfer from a child to grandchild. So if you have children or grandchildren that uh, under your care that are attending post-secondary school and paying tuition, the tuition that they don't use on their tax return up to 5,000 can be transferred to your tax return. So what's new in 2023? Some new credits that we have access to. So along the same concept of the accessibility renovations of homes, the multi-generational home renovation tax credit. So if you're renovating a home uh, to build a suite in your home, maybe for a family member to come in and live with you, uh, there is uh, a credit for up to $50,000 of expenditures towards that kind of renovation. So again, something that's becoming more and more common People are going through the steps of, of making homes accommodative for family members. And there is a new tax credit starting in 2023 for that on up to $50,000 of expenditures. Uh, another new concept in 2023, uh, don't flip out. So if you're buying a home for the purpose of making a quick buck, and maybe this is more of a thing over the last few years of pandemic and real estate prices going through the roof, literally, uh, and people are trying to make a quick buck, buying a house this month, selling it in three or four months to make a quick buck. Government has said, no, you can't do that and claim a capital gain. Typically on secondary properties, if you make have a gain in the value of the property when you sell it, it's gonna trigger a capital gain capital gain are taxed at 50% of the gain. So only half of your gain is taxable, half of the gain is not taxable. What the government has said is that if you sell your home within 12 months of purchase, purchasing it, you're gonna pay tax on that profit as if it's regular business income. So you're gonna pay tax on every single dollar, not on 50% of the dollars of the profit. There are exceptions to the rule. It is, it is possible you buy a home and six months later, something happens in your life that you must sell it. Uh, health reasons, you relocating for work, 
there's a death in the family, there's marital breakdown, there's all those situations that can occur where you'd be somewhat forced to sell the house. And so there are exceptions to this rule, but generally the government's trying to push people away from buying and, and flipping homes within the year. So trying to ease the, the pressure on homes. Uh, working from home has been something more common over the last few years. So for those employees working from home, there's been, uh, you've had the ability to deduct or claim a credit on your tax return. So there's two, two ways that you can do this. Uh, under COVID rules in 2020, 21, and 2022, working from home, you can claim $2 a day for every day you've worked at home. That's a very simplified version of it. If you want to get detailed about it, you can run a report, uh, summarize all of your home-based expenses, like your utilities, uh, your internet use, those sorts of things, what is costing you to be in your home. Then take the proportion of your home that your workspace represents, and that proportion of expenses you would deduct. For most people, uh, it's easier just to claim the $2 a day under that situation. If you do claim a detailed version, you need your employer to sign off on a document for you. So it is a little bit more uh, detail oriented. Uh, yeah, I'd had another thought there, but maybe it's escaped me. There are certain expenses that you can't claim like property taxes. If you're self-employed working from home, that's a different situation, but this isn't the case if you're an employee working from home. Business side of it. I get to play now, my turn. So I was, we're just going to briefly address this because, again, this affects a, a smaller group of people. Um, but if, you're, if you run a business, either a small business from your home or you're an in, incorporated business entity, it changes some of the choices you get to make here. Now, it's funny, as I recently saw the meme going around about, well, it's a write-off. It's like, well, that doesn't make it free. You know, so if you're a small business owner and you write something off, you still have to pay for it. That just means that it may come out of your taxable income at some point in the future. But it opens up a few more opportunities for planning. Like if you have a corporated entity, if you used to run a business and you've got a corporation, there can be tax deferrals that fit in there as well. And that's another whole presentation just on its own. But the way, one way I put it out to people that just to begin to understand it is that having your own corporate structure is a little bit like having another RSP. You can avoid paying or delay paying, defer paying some personal tax on money that you don't take out of the corporation. So if you are a business owner, or again, you have a business owner in your orbit somewhere, there's additional tax planning that can go into that because you can choose when to, to trigger some of that income. But there's a difference between I'm running a side business out of my home and I have a corporate structure. So a corporate structure, again, is a whole other level. If you're running a business without a corporate structure, you're going to be taking all that income in and you just get more complicated on what you know, deductions that you can get. You have to ask Dan what's a legit deduction from that. But if you've got a corporate structure, it is a little bit different. Now it's, you get super, super aggressive with that. And just as, as one comment, we don't recommend getting super, super aggressive. Rules change. There's something called general anti-avoidance rules. And any advice you get from us is going to be very, very conservative in nature. Um, so just quickly, uh, very quickly on charitable donations. Any donations you make, I mentioned it earlier, so this is kind of a, a repetition of earlier. First $200 of charitable donations get a certain tax credit, about 25% on average. And anything above and beyond $200, you're receiving a 50% deduction here in Nova Scotia. Other provinces are slightly different. I think Colin's going to talk about maybe the uh, types of. Yeah. 
Well, the first thing, I, yeah, the first thing I want to say is remember wag the dog. I've had conversations with people. So I got to wait for my tax bill this year. It's like, okay, you got to give half a million dollars to charity. Great, I'm going to do that. Wait, wait, wait. You might have had another use for that half a million dollars. You shouldn't give it all to charity, right? So it's oddly enough, this is where this really happens to me quite often, where people are talking about how much money they want to donate. And I'm going, you're a young person. You're going to be around for a while. Let's let's not jeopardize your own financial situation in pursuit of donating money. But having said that. If it's a priority, that's up to us to help work with you to figure out what a reasonable amount is, but still being able to accomplish your goals. I'll yeah. add to uh, to the side on. I'm just looking at a tax return the other day where there's charitable donations that have gone unused from prior years. Uh, you can accumulate these for five years, so so you can accumulate your charitable donations over five years and claim them all at at one time. But the donations from six years ago are no longer useful. You can only carry forward five years at a time. So I have a situation where an uh, individual has no tax payable, but they're still making charitable donations. There's nothing wrong with making charitable donations and not getting a tax benefit from it. It's just a pure charitable uh, giving event. Uh, there is tax treatment, but in the event that your credits exceed your tax payable, those charitable donations could go unused, and in some situations, they do. But you can accumulate and carry them forward over five years, if you want to. So gifting and kind, this is a bit of a wrinkle that can be a big, a big ad advantage to a lot of people. And this is specifically, if you've got some legacy holdings, if you had you know shares in IBM that your grandfather gave you and you're still holding on to them and you really have no use to the money, there could be a huge capital gain built up there that if you sold them to do something else with them, you're gonna have a capital gain consequence. You can actually transfer those securities directly to a charity and not trigger the capital gain yourself and still get full credit for the value of the contribution. So it's kind of a win-win. Basically, the charity ends up with more money because you're not paying the capital gains tax that would otherwise be payable. We have worked with a lot of charities across Canada, actually set them up to be able to receive that kind of money. The big ones are all set up, but again, your local church, your local Boys and Girls Club may or may not be set up to receive a donation of this kind. And we've worked with them to actually make that happen. And there's also, we have a team member out in BC who's a nationally recognized award winner in the, in the philanthropic space, who's got connections with many different organizations that can facilitate this kind of transaction. So once you have decided it's a priority for you to be giving money on a charitable basis, and we've decided that it's a reasonable amount that's not going to change your diet or make you have to sell your house, the tax aspect of things we can make quite a bit more efficient, which is exactly where really good tax planning should come in. A self-serving slide here, um, how to work with your tax preparer. So speaking on from the experience of receiving tax documents, uh, so the one thing, provide full transparency. You know, don't try to get away with stuff. You know, and we're not, we're, gonna, we're not gonna play that game if we're involved in tax preparation. We aren't gonna follow the rules, we're gonna file according to, uh, to what the rules and the laws are. Organize your documents. You know, Getting a, a stack of documents all disorganized and all over the place, yeah, we can sort through it, but the more organized you are, your tax preparer will certainly appreciate that. Uh, summarize medical expenses and get printout from the pharmacy. So those little square pharmacy prescription receipts that people get, and they stack up about that thick, and you have to go through them and add them all up and likely make mistakes as you add them up because you hit the wrong key. The pharmacy will print out a nice summary of one page or maybe two pages long of January 1 to December 31st transactions. Everything that you spend at the pharmacy that year will get summarized 
on that one piece of paper. It's amazing and it saves a lot of time and, and potential mistakes of addition and so on. Uh, if you own a secondary property, if you have a cottage, if you have land, if you have other property within your family, keep a record of transactions of that secondary property. More and more often now we're seeing people sell properties that have been in the family for decades, whether it's a piece of land, it's a cottage, and they know the sale price. I sold it this year for 150000 Well, what did you pay for it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, how much money did you spend on renovations? I don't know. Well, how much do we declare as your cost for that property to determine your capital gain? We can't come up with a number. That, has to, that number has to come from the property owner. And then you go back through memory. You go through the history and say, okay, I bought it in 1982. I think I replaced the roof in 1987. And you start to go through that whole exercise of the history of the property. So if you or anybody in your circle own a secondary property, try to go through while you're still thinking clearly, think of that, all that history of those, uh, the, the years with that property. It'll make a lot of difference at the time of disposing it, whether you sell it, transfer it to another family member, or it's dealt with through your estate. So those are a couple of things that, uh, one thing in particular that comes up a lot that tends to take a bit of time in trying to sort our way through. Uh, I think that's pretty much it from what I have to say. So, all right. So thanks for your, for your attention, everybody. Based on observation, it seems that the time an investor is most likely to move his or her portfolio to a new advisor is when the old advisor dies. Let us go on record as saying that having a pulse is not a great reason to trust someone with your entire financial future. Stop putting your life in the hands of stillbreathingwealthplanners.com and call us. has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth, Inc. IA Private Wealth, Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth, Inc. operates. This should not be construed as legal, tax, or accounting advice. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.